Good morning. It's good to be here with you again today, and um, Happy New Year to all of you. Um, it is uh, always a time when we are in a new year for recalibration. For some of y'all, that means that you went through closets and started to things to the Salvation Army to donate. Some of y'all, it was recalibrating your finances, looking to see where your debts might be or assets might be and get things lined up to be in good shape. Some of you, it's your physical shape. You may need to be recalibrating what you think about eating and the, after the sweets and the joyful celebration of feasting of Christmas, you may be thinking of fasting a little bit to recalibrate your health. This season of New Year is a time where we are often recalibrating. But every single Sunday as we gather should be, in a sense, like that, a time of recalibration. Christians live with a constant need to recalibrate ourselves. but the difference that Christians have in the way that we recalibrate is that the way that we often think of recalibration is looking at our idealized self. Who is the self that I want to be? You know, I can picture the, the fully fit Chuck who's got all his ducks in a row and a neat house and neat finances. And I think that's what I need to move towards. But we gather here week by week in worship so that we have a different point of view. Christians are not called to recalibrate to our idealized self, but we're called to recalibrate to our future, to what God says we will one day be. You know, there's a fascinating thing that I just happened to notice. If you still have your hymnal, I invite you to look back at what we confessed, because it's really interesting to me, and I'd love to draw your attention to it. If you remember the first question of the Shorter Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our call, that's our task, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But look again at question 38. This is what we confessed. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in what? Glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in what? The full enjoying of God to all eternity. Isn't that interesting? Do you see the, the beauty of what they did there? They brought back that first question to the minds of the people in this catechism to say that this is your task in this present moment to seek to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But this is your future, your hope, your reality that one day you will be raised up in glory and that one day you will be fully enjoying him forever, not from what you have done, but from what he has done. This is how we recalibrate our lives to the future that God has given to us. And that's why I think it's wise and good to take a moment at the beginning of this year to look to the book of Revelation, to this book of images, visions of our future, so that we recalibrate our lives not to our idealized self, but we recalibrate our lives to the future that God has for us. Let us now give our attention to God's word as I read to us from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, starting in verse 9 and going through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pause and ask his help that we might understand it. Our good Father, we thank you that you give us glimpses of what will be so that we do not live with insecurity, that we do not live with dread, but we live with a confident hope resting on your goodness to us. We pray that these words would encourage us for Jesus' sake. Amen. As we reflect on this passage, the outline for today and the thing that I hope you walk away with is this, the worshipers of the Lamb. The worshipers of the Lamb. But first, let's look at the worshipers. The book of Revelation, as you may know, is a book of pictures. It's a picture book. That's why we even see in this passage the way that John starts off in verse 7, 7 saying, After this I looked. Throughout the book of Revelation, we hear that phrase, I looked, I looked, I looked. Because the book of Revelation is a, a glimpse of visions that God gave the apostle John that he might then give to the Christians in his day. And the Christians in his day needed these pictures, they needed these visions, they needed these images because they were living in a hard time. They were undergoing persecution and trials as the Roman Empire was trying to, to stamp out their faith. We actually see that John himself was undergoing this persecution. As he wrote this book, he was exiled by an emperor. But he wasn't the only one. He writes this to the people receiving this letter at the beginning, the book of Revelation. He says, I am your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. This book is written to a pe people who are experiencing hardship, persecution, tribulation by one who also was experiencing hardship, persecution, and tribulation. But what does John give to them? What does God, through John, give to them so that they can endure, that they can make it in this time of hardship, persecution, tribulation? He gives these images. He gives these visions. You know, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. 
And a lot of times what fills our hearts and minds are a thousand different words of worry, a thousand different words of hardship or tribulation or fears or doubts. And in the midst of these people's lives, as there's so many questions and words that they're meditating on, reflecting, filtering into their heart and soul, God gives a vision of what their future will be so that they can hold this in their heart to counter all the words of doubt and fear and insecurity. And if you read through the book of Revelation, you see that John actually has a pattern to the way that he wrote. He has a certain rhythm that he writes. John writes about the ways that that there'll be times of tribulation, hardship, persecution. There'll be times of judgment to follow, but it always ends with worship. The book of Revelation always goes through that pattern, hardship, tribulation, judgment, and then worship. It always ends in worship. And John does this because he wants to see for the people that he's writing to that there's a great sense of hope that through the times of tribulation, through the times of judgment, they will arrive where they long to be, in a place of worship, before the throne. And this is what we actually see in this passage. We see the glimpse of what worship will be like for all believers, as this is a picture of all believers gathered before the throne of God. And the beautiful thing is, is this vision of what worship will be like for us helps us to understand better our present life. Look again at this passage at verse 9, where John says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. There John says, I see a vast multitude, which no one could number. Now that language is reminiscent of the promise to Abraham, who God in the book of Genesis says to him, look at the sky and count the stars if you can. Your offspring will be that numerous. What we see in this vision is that promise comes true. And think about the encouragement that this would be to this church at this time as it seems like the great and powerful Roman Empire is using its resources to stamp it out and wondering, is this little thing of Christianity going to survive their power? And John says, this is your future to be a part of this vast multitude that no one can number. And in the midst of feeling small and insignificant, God gives a glimpse, a vision of their future so that they don't live with that question of will this survive? Will God's promises be real? But they live with confidence and hope, knowing that one day they will be a part of this vast multitude that can't even be counted. This is a vision that was given to these people in the the struggles of wondering if Christianity would survive so that they continue in their present lives to labor forward with confident hope that Christianity will not just make it, but that one day it will be a vast multitude that no one can number. And don't you see how this vision isn't just helpful for them, but is helpful for you? How this can give hope to you in your own life? What keeps you praying for your neighbor to come to faith? What 
makes you willing to take a risk to invite your coworker to church? What helps you to not live in fear about your children or your grandchildren's salvation? If we see this as our future, to know that we are going to be a part of a vast multitude of people who are worshiping God and the Lamb, that helps us to know that there's a vast number of people around us who will be a part of this, and our coworker, our friend, our child, our grandchildren, they may be a part of that number too. And so we don't wonder, is God still working? We don't wonder, is God going to bring people to himself? But we expect to see it. We expect to see multitudes of people surrounding us on that throne. And so we expect to see multitudes of people in our life come to faith. God's future determines how we view our present life. And so seeing this multitude of worshipers gives us hope and confidence that God's work continues in a beautiful way. But you can even consider this picture of the way that John's multitude of worshipers are described as people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And in our country, in our city, where we see seemingly intractable divisions based on culture or color lines, this picture reminds us that those things will not always be. And that the church has this picture of a hope that we are to be a united and worshiping community of every tribe and tongue and nation. And what this does is it gives us the ability to, in the present moment, to not be cynical about how unity can happen in the church. To not be cynical about whether or not people of of different backgrounds can come together, but to be people of hope that know that, yes, we will be united with brothers and sisters who are from very different backgrounds. And again, that future shapes our present lives. And so we labor now to get to know our brothers and sisters who are different from us because we know that one day we will be united with them in worship around the throne of the Lamb. But do you see how these visions of our future can be taken to heart? How when we look at these visions, they they shape our present life. They shape what we expect to see God do. They shape the way that we live. These pictures give us vivid hopes that disciple us. Because as we think about them, hold them in our minds, hold them in our hearts, it shapes the way that we move in our day-to-day life. John wants us to have these pictures for us to meditate on so that we will live in a way that reflects what we see. And so he gives us the glimpses of these worshipers, but he gives us another vision, another glimpse of the object of worship of Jesus. And it's a fascinating thing that he does because the way that he portrays Jesus is with a sense of irony. And the way that he uses this irony is to help that that image to stick a little bit more deeply in us. You know, that's what irony does. When you see or hear something that's ironic, that that truth hits a little bit deeper, doesn't it? And so John uses several pictures of irony in this to help us to see some truths, to see some pictures of Jesus that, that we desperately need to hear. 
And we see that even in the way that Jesus is described in this passage as a lamb. Now, if you were to go and read through the book of Revelation, you would see that the lamb is the main way that Jesus is described throughout this book. It occurs around 29 times, the lamb. The phrase Jesus Christ only occurs seven times, or just Christ only occurs four. Throughout this book, John talks about Jesus as the lamb. We see this starting in Revelation 5, where we see that this lamb is a lamb that is particularly described as the lamb who is slain, which is a striking and ironic picture, isn't it? The one who is slain is a lamb. And that image is one that would give you a sense of weakness, a dead lamb, a sense of shame. But throughout this book, what do we see about this lamb who is slain? That this lamb who is slain is glorified. That this lamb who is slain is worshipped. We even see this in our passage in verse 10 and following where it says, And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with them the elders and the four living creatures fall face down before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. The lamb who is slain is the one who is glorified. The lamb who is slain is the one who is worshipped. The lamb who is slain is the one who is given all glory and wisdom and honor and power and strength. This lamb is not weak. This lamb is not shameful. But he is strong and he is glorious. And this is the object of the Christian's worship. A lamb who is slain. But wouldn't that help these readers make sense of their life? They're trying to faithfully follow Jesus. And what happens to them? Persecution, tribulation, trials. But if Jesus is the king and is supposed to be conquering, wouldn't we expect everything to be so much easier? Why is it that we are facing persecution and hardship and tribulation? John says, but what are you worshiping? What is the object of your worship? It's a lamb who is slain. Throughout the Bible, we see a theme that, that you become like what you worship. And if the object of your worship is a lamb who is slain, what do you expect your life will look like? One of conquest and victory and ease? Or one of sacrifice? And suffering. The lamb who is slain is worshipped, which is why, in a sense, John helps his readers to understand the nature of their life, that the nature of their life is not going to be one of ease, but one of tribulation. We even see this. John is brought uh, to the attention of an elder, and he has an elder come up and ask him this question. It's a rhetorical question so that the elder can teach John. We see this starting in verse 12. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are those clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There, this elder is describing the nature of the worshipers. This elder is describing you and me and all believers. And how does he describe them? He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And what this means is that as he's describing the worshipers of the Lamb, he's saying that all of them conform to the image of the Lamb. Just as he is the Lamb who underwent the great tribulation and so became the Lamb who was slain, so all of his people conform to his humiliation. All of his people endure, in a sense, their own great tribulation. And they live in this world with the expectation that, as the Apostle Paul says, we are sheep to be slaughtered. But why is that? It's because we worship the Lamb who is slain. The normal Christian life is one of tribulation. The normal Christian life is one of this hardship. And it's important for us to keep this in our minds so that we're not surprised, as Peter says, when fiery trials come on us. We expect it. Why? Because we worship the lamb who is slain. But that also gives us hope even in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that tribulation. Because why was that lamb slain? Was it because he was weak? Was it because he failed? No, the lamb was slain for our benefit. And this is another ironic picture that, that is given to us in this passage that speaks deeply to us. The reason that the lamb is slain is so that we can be cleansed. Look again to what the elder says to John. He says, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you hear that irony? That these saints gathered around the throne, they have robes of white, speaking of purity, blamelessness, perfection. They have robes of white, but how did they become white? It wasn't through bleach. It was through the blood of the lamb. The red blood of the lamb washes their robes and makes them white and pure. This is another image that John gives us to encourage us, gives to these readers to encourage them, because all of us at times have felt Sin stain. All of us at times have things that we hold still in our minds and our hearts and wonder, is this forever going to mark me? Is this forever going to stain me? This thing that I did, this thing that I said, this thing that I did not do that should have, is that forever going to be stamped on me in an indelible way? But we have a vision here that says no matter how stained you are, One day this will be you if you are in Christ. 
that if you bring your stained robes to the blood of the lamb, he washes them so that forever and ever and ever you stand before him clothed in white without any spot or wrinkle or stain, beautiful because of what he has done for you. This is your future. As real as this present moment, this is your destiny. And it's important to take this image and allow it to speak into your heart in all the places of doubt and fear, wondering, will God really accept me? Has God really forgiven me? Have I taken it too far or Will he still be kind to me? This image is a gift to us to remind us that no matter how deeply stained our robes may be, his blood cleanses them. And these worshipers have had their robes cleansed through the blood of the lamb who was slain. He was slain for their iniquity so that they could be cleansed. And this reminds us that this lamb who is slain is a good shepherd. And that's another interesting image that John gives to us, ironically portraying the way that that we follow this lamb who is slain by calling him a shepherd. Look down to how the people sing Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that an ironic image? That the shepherd is the lamb, that the one who leads the sheep is a lamb. And this is a gift to us to help us to know that the one who leads us has become like us, that he knows what it's like to be a sheep. And so as he shepherds us, he shepherds us with a sense of gentleness and kindness, understanding what it's like because he himself is a lamb. And that's important to remember when life feels hard, when you feel that sense of tribulation and trials and persecutions that are in your life. Why is it that God would allow this? Why is it that God is is doing this to me? Is it because he doesn't get what it's like? Why wouldn't he be shepherding me this way? But who is your shepherd? It's a lamb. It's a lamb. Not a strong sheep even, a lamb. Does he know what it's like to be you? Yes. Does he know how hard it is? Yes. And so when he leads you, he doesn't lead you as a calloused one who doesn't get it. He leads you as a good shepherd who himself is a sheep, who himself is a lamb. John is giving us this ironic image of the lamb leading the sheep So that even in the midst of the hardships of our life, we know that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. 
And the beautiful thing that John does is describes the way that this shepherd leads his people. When he says he will guide them to the springs of living water. And there, that's an allusion to the 23rd Psalm, where it speaks of the Lord as our shepherd, and so we shall not want, who brings us through the valley of the shadow of death, who brings us to the, the table prepared before us, where our head is anointed, who brings us to dwell with our Father. You know, the interesting thing about this passage is this is our future that one day we will dwell with God as his worshipers, that we one day will dwell with our good shepherd, the lamb who is slain. And it says that the lamb is in the midst of the throne as our shepherd. That phrase in the midst is really drawing out the Hebrew idea of tabernacle. That God wants to be present with his people. And so as it says, the lamb is in the midst of the throne as their shepherd, it's saying that Jesus himself wants to dwell with us, to tabernacle with us. And that our destiny is to be drawn through all the hardships, the trials, the tribulations for the sole purpose of being brought to dwell, to tabernacle, to be with our God, to be with our Savior forever. And he draws us to him so that we can have the healing that we need. So that he guides them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep so that he can bring them to the place of healing and restoration. He's the one who is slain for our healing, who bled for our iniquity, and who is enthroned for our perseverance, for our good, to lead him through all the hardships and trials of this world, to dwell securely with him forever. This is your hope. This is your future. This image is given to you so that you can recalibrate all of your daily thoughts and fears and doubts and questions to this your reality. That one day, one day you will be one of these worshipers. That one day you will be right there at the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white. That one day, all the hardships and pains and hurts that you have endured will be gently wiped away. That one day, you will be with your God and Savior forever and ever and ever. This future determines your present life. May we live in boldness and courage at this vision that he's given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift to know our future and to know what it is that Christ and his work does for us. And we pray that you would help us to conform 
our present hopes and our present actions to this future reality. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.